Mayday, mayday. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. It's May 1st, 2020. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. Today, back in the day, ancient Romans held May celebrations with the Floralia, the festival of Flora, the Roman goddess of flowers. The Floralia opened with theater. Hares and goats were released as part of the festivities. Crowds were pelted with vetches, beans, and lupins. Vetches and lupins, by the way, are flower types. Floralia concluded with competitive events and spectacles and a sacrifice to flora. In 1886, May Day was selected as International Workers' Day, beginning with the U.S. general strike for the eight-hour workday. And is that why, by the way, pilots and mariners in distress say May Day, May Day? Nope. Derived from the French term May Day, roughly speaking, which basically means help me. And May Day, May Day indeed, it's the last day of the X-Ray Fun Drive. Today we have the chance to do something really special. We're working to engage the largest number of donors yet. Please do become a member. Today is the last day. Make your donation, 503-233-9729. Shout out the local. Or go to xray.fm slash donate. And also, shout out the local. Today on The Local, a focus on endorsements, your quick six headlines. And Alex Zielinski is on with us to discuss the Mercury's endorsements and an interview with Helen Jung from The Oregonian on, you guessed it, endorsements. First up, it's time for today's quick six local rundown. The Oregon coronavirus job losses have topped 360,000, while more than 100,000 claims have yet to be processed. Another 28,500 Oregonians filed new unemployment claims last week. All told, it's about 18% of all Oregon jobs, or a little more than one in six. And while the number of new claims fell for the third consecutive week, it's still a historic level. And remember, claims are likely to spike. Oregon is just now beginning to process applications from contractors and the self-employed who were previously ineligible. The Oregon Employment Department says it's paying out more than $100 million in claims each week. And the state has accumulated a backlog of more than 100,000 unprocessed jobless claims. The Employment Department has employed some people. 610 staffers are now processing claims. That's up from a little more than 100 since before the outbreak. But there's been a 14-fold increase in new claims. 30 million people in the United States have filed for unemployment since the COVID-19 crisis began. That means one in five people who had a job in February now don't. Your daily dose of data. As of Thursday, state health officials report that Oregon's confirmed caseload of coronavirus has reached just over 2,500 people. The number of related deaths is at 103. Latest available data from Washington shows 14,070 cases and 801 related deaths. Demographic info released on Thursday shows that people of color make up 40% of the confirmed cases in Multnomah County. And for the entire metro region, which also includes counties of Clackamas, Washington, and Yamhill, people of color are making up about 43% of confirmed cases. And heart disease has been the underlying condition in 60% of Oregon's coronavirus deaths. So out of about 55,000 people tested, about 2,500 have been positive, and by that I mean bad. And according to the OHA, all of those who died in the state from the coronavirus had underlying health conditions. Almost 60% had cardiovascular disease. The second highest underlying medical condition was a neurological or neurodevelopmental issue, such as epilepsy, Alzheimer's, or cerebrovascular diseases such as stroke, multiple sclerosis, and Parkinson's. Other underlying conditions include diabetes in about a third of cases, lung disease, 29% of cases, kidney disease, 25%, compromised immune systems, 18%, and liver disease, 7%. Mayday, mayday indeed. 
Some businesses are pushing back against the new Oregon tax. With April 30th come and gone, business owners face a choice, whether to make the first quarterly payment under Oregon's new corporate activity tax, or the CAT. The corporate activity tax is a big piece of the Student Success Act, the historic measure that was Oregon's biggest move to fund schools since Measure 5 and Measure 50 hobbled school funding. And yesterday's deadline marked the first collection under the new business tax. It was meant to boost school funding by roughly a billion dollars a year, but that calculation was pre-pandemic. Now, businesses and trade groups who resisted the tax are now urging Governor Brown to delay implementation, so far without success. From the head of the Eugene Area Chamber of Commerce, unfortunately, there are a lot of companies who maybe had a good quarter one before our economy was essentially shut down, and they're going to have to be making estimated payments on that with very limited cash flow at this moment. Has a quote from the head of the Eugene Area Chamber of Commerce. The tax applies to companies with more than a million dollars in revenue. The argument is that they're basing that on prior year's income. They don't have any idea what the coming months might bring. The governor did direct one late-breaking change to how the tax is collected. Businesses that anticipate owing less than $10,000 for 2020 can pay it all in April of 2021. The Revenue Department has also said that businesses having trouble calculating or paying quarterly taxes won't be penalized, provided they document how COVID-19 has hurt their business. And Metro's ballot measure looks to raise $250 million annually for homeless services. Measure 26-210 was referred to the ballot by Metro, intending to fund services like case management, rent assistance, addiction, and mental health services. Measures funded by taxing high-earning residents and businesses, a 1% marginal income tax on individuals earning more than $125,000 annually or couples who earn more than $200,000 annually, and the second is a 1% tax on the profits of businesses that have annual gross receipts of more than $5 million. Money would then be distributed to counties based on population of 45% to Multnomah, 33% to Washington, 21% to Clackamas County, 5% to Oversight and Administration. An oversight body of 20 members would have public meetings to ensure full transparency of the work. And there would be annual performance audits, either through the independently elected Metro Auditor or through an outside auditing firm. The measure does include a 10-year sunset, after which the Metro Council will decide whether to extend, change, or end the program. According to a poll from Here Together Oregon, there is support for the measure, 60% saying they would vote yes. And Metro President Lynn Peterson said the coronavirus pandemic has shown how necessary support services are for the region's vulnerable population, saying that 90% of individuals and 94% of businesses will not be paying the tax. Her quote is specifically targeted to make sure that those who have the ability to pay will be paying for it. Those who do not have the ability to pay, especially in this moment, will not be paying for it. Critics have attacked the measure as being hastily rushed to the ballot and having questions of administration process and costs. Advocates point out that there is a housing emergency, even before the coronavirus. Ballots are now being mailed to voters. Some people have already received them. Voters will have until May 19th, remember that date, Election Day, to return their ballots. And state elections officials are urging Oregonians to stay home and vote by mail. We're allowed to do that instead of using ballot drop boxes. Ballot postage is now free thanks to Senate Bill 861, shout out to the bus project, which was signed into law last August by Governor Kate Brown. South Portland has become the city's sixth sectant. But you can still call it a quadrant. Peabot says it's okay. Today, southwest waterfront Portland residents will wake to discover they now live in a new part of the city, South Portland. After two years of preparation on the city's part, Portland has established a sixth sectant. 
The new sextant of South Portland includes all current Southwest Portland addresses east of NATO Parkway or east of Southwest Viewpoint Terrace in more southern neighborhoods. It's about 6,000 current Southwest addresses you might consider at the South Waterfront. City Council voted to designate South Portland as its own sextant or its sixth quadrant, which doesn't make any sense, but we might still say it that way. How many of us are going to say sextant, by the way? Are we going to try to make that cool? I don't know. I haven't decided yet. I'll be hearing from you. Many Southwest addresses in the area have zero as the first digit. They are often confused by first responders with houses bearing nearly identical addresses without the zero. For instance, the difference between Southwest 100 and Southwest 0100. The new sextant will mean new addresses for its inhabitants. So, for instance, the old spaghetti factory used to be 0715 Southwest Bancroft Street. Well, now it's just 715 South Bancroft Street. Peabot? That's the Portland Bureau of Transportation to us. We'll add stickers reflecting the change to street signs in good condition and replace older signs. Old addresses will still be included as aliases. Didn't know addresses could have aliases. And this is the first time Portland has gained a new directional address since 1931 when the city was split into north, northeast, northwest, southeast, and southwest. Portland is officially a city of sextants. Though Peabot recognizes most of us still want to call them quadrants, regardless of how many we have. Will we still have quadrants no matter how many of them there are? Will we get to an octant? Will we change the shape of the city to a dodecahedron? Oregon has a new top poet. On Monday, Anis Mojgani was announced as Oregon's Poet Laureate. His two-year appointment begins May 4th. He'll be the 10th poet in the role, following Edwin Charles Markham, Ben-Hur Lampman, Ethel Romig Fuller, William Stafford, Lawson Inada, Paul Ann Peterson, Peter Sears, Elizabeth Woody, and Kim Stafford, William Stafford's son. Don't call it nepotism. They're just both talented. Mojgani's going to get an annual honorarium of 15 grand and an annual travel subsidy up to 10 grand. Where are you traveling during the coronavirus? Where are you traveling during the coronavirus? Slam poetry must not die in the distance. Mojgani is a New Orleans native, two-time champion of the National Poetry Slam, and an International World Cup Poetry Slam winner. Poetry in competition. Something poetic about it. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Reminder that X-Ray FM is offering free radio spots to businesses and organizations in need from the coronavirus. Just submit to the local at x-ray.fm. Here's Emily Gilliland with What's Next. Thanks, Jefferson. First up, Alex Zelensky, news editor from the Portland Mercury. Portland Mercury has just released their endorsements. Here's Alex with more. Alex, you just came out with your endorsements as well. We did. We did. I want to start in reverse. I want to start with that, with the Chloe U. Daly endorsement. I found that so interesting. You have an incumbent member of the city council, and somehow our four newspapers endorsed four different candidates. Uh, how'd you land where you landed? I think um, it's a good question because it's tricky. Uh, there's so many interesting and um, thoughtful candidates that are part of that race in particular. Um, and part of, I mean, I think the same goes for uh, position 2C. I think everyone, every other newspaper kind of picked a different candidate there, too. Um, but, yeah, for uh, Commissioner Daly endorsement, I mean, it was one of those decisions where, um, you know, she said she's done exactly what she promised voters she would do in 2016, at least by our, you know, measurements. Um, she's greatly improved uh renters' rights in, in Portland. She's, um, you know, established a lot of new programs to support tenants. 
um, which is kind of the platform she ran on and, and, and she's upheld. And on top of that has been thrown some uh, challenging um, assignments like, you know, being in charge of the Portland Bureau of Transportation without really having uh, much experience with transportation or any of that kind of specific planning and um, did her work to, to find out what her job needed to look like and who she needed to be listening to and what really mattered there. Um, and I think we, we were impressed with that. You know, the interesting thing that I've seen in other um, other publications is just kind of, and, and you know, a lot of pushback comes from her decision uh, to kind of restructure the neighborhood uh, associations, or at least that the bureau that encompasses them, um, which you know we agree was a flub, and we mentioned that. Um, I don't think uh, her. I don't think that that is enough to say she's not worthy of continuing to experiment with um, the city and the city programs and try new things. And you know, her her interest there to bring more equity to neighborhoods um, is entirely in line with what Portlanders want and what, you know, we, um, at least our editorial team, uh, thinks the city, uh, the direction the city should go. But uh, the way it was played out and the way it was rolled out was really clunky and um, and full of a bit of misinformation and confusion. Um, you know, another thing that, strike, that, that stood out to me and the other folks' kind of perceptions of her is just her personality, um, which, you know, is not your, your, maybe not your classic politician personality. She's very, um, she can be brutally honest. She can be um, tough. She can be mean sometimes in some people's eyes. Um, she also can be very sweet and straightforward. Uh, I think, as always, there's a bigger microscope put over female politicians especially ones who do not have um, traditional political um, background and haven't been polished to be that, you know, classic um, uh, pantsuit-wearing politician. I think... Um, so you, didn't, you weren't concerned that Chloe Daly was too biased... Excuse me. You weren't concerned, as the Oregonian was, that Chloe Daly was too divisive. Divisive. Um she certainly brings she she divides the community in some ways to stoke good conversations i think it's important to i wouldn't say she she necessarily divides the community but she brings out different opinions that i think a lot of people sit quietly on for a while and we don't like bringing to the surface we don't like really talking about and it's uncomfortable. Um, yeah, people fighting think, against slave pe- people fighting against slavery were, you know, dividing a pro-slavery regime. So that's not always bad, right? And you know, I wouldn't compare the <laughs> the the divisive sure. conversations we're having now to necessarily slavery conversations, lower stakes. But um, I do think that it's okay to be uncomfortable in city hall, and it's okay to have these conversations. And I really encourage it. I do not think it's bad for democracy. I do not think. Uh, City Hall is supposed to be a tidy and polite place. Um, I I really encourage making people feel a little uncomfortable um, who have, especially the people who've been listened to consistently for for, for millennia (laughs) and been the the loudest in the room for a very long time. And I think what 
Commissioner Udaley brings to the surface is the voices of people who have not felt welcome in those spaces. And if that is what divisiveness looks like, then so be it. Let me ask about the position two. Uh, mm-hmm. Where did you, or, or position four, I guess. Uh, uh, position four, you landed with Chloe Udaley. On position two, uh, your endor- explain your endorsement there. Say who you endorsed and why. Yeah, we endorsed Tara Hurst, who was uh, honestly not really on our radar before this um, this election. Uh, you know, we were familiar with her, the um, nonprofit that she runs, her organization Renew Oregon, uh, which is uh, perhaps most famously known for kind of lobbying at the state capitol for clean the clean jobs bill and clean energy bills that that forced <laughs> that encouraged. Uh, Republican members of the Senate to to walk out uh, last session. Um, But so we weren't, you know, we knew kind of what the work she had done in the past, what she was kind of connected to. But but speaking with her and getting to know her during our endorsement process um, and kind of understanding where her head was at um, really... She she brought a number of things to the table that I think uh, the city could could use and could benefit from. Um, one of those, obviously, being her background. She uh, worked in Mayor Hill's office as the chief of staff for a year or so, and um, helped kind of roll out the um, homeless, uh, the major kind of homeless response uh, under uh, Mayor Hill's leadership um and and also kind of you know juggled the 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 boring ins and outs of city hall which include dealing with the budget and dealing with kind of the nitty-gritty bits so she understands that piece of it which is um not sexy but important um but she also brings perspective as a um as someone who you know has worked a lot in uh, clean energy areas and advocacy in these areas. I think the interesting thing about city council, especially Portland City Council, is that it's such a small, you know, you got five people um, trying to, to agree upon one thing, and it can easily be thrown into a standstill if one person, you know, doesn't really want to, uh, can't really side on one issue or the other, can't agree with someone else. And her, um, we thought that her background in working with state legislatures, both uh, as a lobbyist and as someone who's trying to move um, progressive ideas forward, her ability to, to kind of negotiate in those ways and also maybe compromise with some um, some folks in different positions is really important. Uh, I think that's something that uh, you know the late Commissioner Nick Fish brought to the table in a way that kind of after his death, a lot of folks have talked about you know not just being a mediator, but being someone who can have those tricky conversations and not and, and navigate um, kind of folks' opinions to uh, to move things forward and to think as a, as a team and not kind of a standalone. Um, one thing that's kind of unique that stood out to me about Tara also was her, um, you know, she really campaigned on uh, the platform of being a uh, an addict, being a former alcoholic, um, and spoke a lot um, about the importance of having someone with that experience on city council and obviously more than just like, you know, tokenization of having someone with that background on city council. She seems to really 
understand um, how that um, population in Portland is disproportionately, um, you know, the, the ton of people who are houseless, a ton of people who are incarcerated um, have a background of uh, mental illness and, and addiction. You know, they're disproportionately represented, certainly on the streets of Portland. Alex Zielinski, thank you so much for being with us yeah. this morning. And people can check out all of the endorsements of the Mercury. I hope that we can do this again soon to go through some of the others, including on the ballot initiatives. Uh, but I've enjoyed reading them and seeing some of the distinctions and appreciate your time. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting, an interesting primary. The Oregonian is in the midst of sharing their endorsements for the May primary. Today we have Helen Jung with us to share their thinking so far. Helen Jung has been a member of the Oregonian's editorial board since October 2014. Previously, she spent 22 years as a reporter in the Northwest, covering breaking news, courts, and business. We're under the view that endorsements this year are going to matter more, and we don't as a station make them, but we're under the impression that endorsements this year are going to matter more than ever because there is, there's so few other levers for people to make their decisions and so much attention on COVID-19 itself. I wonder if that was something that came up in your endorsement process, but either way, describe your endorsement process for folks. Sure. Um, I'm going to just first start out by saying that, um, yes, it did um, have an impact in terms of at least how uh, we share information with the public. So um, we have not in the past um, uh, videotaped uh, any, or actually we haven't, we haven't done all of our endorsement interviews. We've usually just done an in-person meeting. Um, this year over Zoom, we recorded all of them and we put them on the Oregonians YouTube channel. Um, because we do recognize it's a strange situation here where candidates aren't able to um, host the kind of gatherings that they would normally or do the door knocking that they would. So anything that we could do to just sort of get their words directly out to people, we did. But for our endorsement process, for the most part, you had a lot of seats that attracted many, many candidates. And even the mayor's race where you have an incumbent, um, he had 17 other challengers. So um, the first thing that we did uh, for most races was to send out um, a questionnaire. The questions go, you know, they're tailored for, you know, either the Portland City Council race or the Metro race or legislative races. And um, with specific questions that kind of, for us, help us to see how someone approaches a problem, how well they understand the problem, just kind of the way they frame an, an issue. So based on those questionnaires, um, we discussed kind of who our top candidates were and selected either two or three from each race to join us in a Zoom call. After the Zoom call, we again kind of meet among ourselves. I recorded these also in part so that editorial board members who can't who couldn't make um, the actual interview could at least watch the video afterwards um, and then kind of talk it out and come to consensus on, on who we think is the best candidate for whichever position. I want to ask about your criteria. Do you sort of have the criteria in mind before you go or does that just kind of come out in the questioning? What's the criteria? How do you pick? For picking the final uh, person to endorse? Yeah. Well, it's going to be it's going to depend on different races. And Let's talk about mayor. What, what's, a, what's a criteria uh, for selecting your mayor mayoral endorsement? Well, th- this is a situation where you have an incumbent, and so you have a clear record to look at, um, and it's 
it is really a question of, okay, is this the, the right path we're on or does someone else offer a compelling uh, vision and, and practical strategy that um, is worth the change? Um, so that's going to be different than, for instance, an open seat where, you know, you're looking for maybe someone who's going to provide a voice that hasn't been there in the past. Um, so in this case, it really was looking at, okay, is Ted Wheeler's um, term, is it, um, is it putting Portland on the right path? Is he doing the right things? Or is it worth changing um, for someone else, you know, which ha- carries its own cost no matter who it is? Um, you know, in terms of the momentum that's lost or the, um, you know, the change in, in bureaus, there's always going to be a certain amount of transition when you switch over from an incumbent. And in this case, we felt that, um, you know, he has been overall been doing a good job. We think that his priorities are right. Um, I think what really made it clear for us was also just uh, his actions in, during the pandemic. Um, he's been decisive. I think he's been also very collaborative in making sure that there's uh, there, it was a statewide response for a stay home um, order, which is going to be far more effective than just a city stay home policy. The economic relief that he's been uh, uh, leading and, and helping and uh, partnering with others to get that out the door as soon as possible has been really key. I think the urgency is very important to us with uh, a factor that, that we thought was, you know, reflected good leadership. So those are just some of the things that went into it. Any pause? Was there, was it a close call for you? Was there any concern you had? I know that there's been the subject of the campaign finance uh, criticism recently. Any pause you had or was the mayor decision sort of an easy call for you? You know, none of these are easy calls, um, but this one was something that I think we all felt strongly about that, um, you know, his his leadership and um, and particularly just kind of what's happening right now with the pandemic and who you need to have, um, you know, looking at both the human response and the economic response um, that he was the right person. Uh, the other critical race, the other one that we didn't address, and that's position two, is position four. Position four, I looked at the four newspapers we've got, right? Oregon, Willamette Week, Tribune, uh, and the Portland Mercury. And everybody somehow endorsed a different candidate in that, <laughs> in that, dish, in that, for that seat. Uh, what gave Mingus Maps the edge for you? Um, you know, he had what we thought the most complete package of. Um, a thoughtful approach, um, a, uh, you know, clear priorities in terms of, you know, and people may disagree on this, I'm sure. And, and, you know, there's, there's certainly, um, well, people may disagree, but, you know, he is a a very big backer of neighborhoods. Um, He has a very um, optimistic view of what Portland can achieve based on, you know, using the assets we have to, um, improve that the neighborhood network, the neighborhood association um, uh, in, inclusivity. Um, he also, uh, at the same time, he's a big um, proponent of changing the commission form of government, um, recognizing that the way we have things now is not working. Uh, you know, it does put commissioners in this um, 
or asks of them to be great managers as well as legislators. And um, that's not something that really makes um, a whole lot of sense. Or, you know, it hasn't served Portland well for the most part. Um, and, you know, it's just he had the, you know, he brought kind of this um, very clear focus on, you know, let's make Portland better for our, our kids. Let's ensure that it's going to proceed forward and that we're not going to let, um, you know, he, he was seeing, you know, Portland as kind of heading off in the wrong track. It's like, you know what, let's focus on what is it that we have to do to make sure that this city um, is here and prosperous and supportive of the next generation. And it was just a very clear, optimistic focus of where we should be headed. Um, you know, and, you know, certainly Commissioner Udaly has done, you know, she's certainly been effective in delivering, especially on tenant rights, um, which she said she would um, uh, in her campaign. Um, also, we we do, you know, we the the Rose Lane project is is a smart um, achievement. I guess our issue is one we we are concerned about how some of those tenant um, tenant uh, changes are going to affect the economic market for um, apartment availability. Um, are there going to be mom and pop landlords who um, are willing to go through? the complexity and legal potential legal exposure of some of the changes that have been um, adopted uh, or you know will they sell out to bigger companies will investors kind of pull out um, you know Portland just needs more housing so that's one issue that that you know while she has been effective we're not sure um, ultimately how effective that's going to be for the market as a whole um, and then it's it's the divisiveness aspect, um, it is, there is, I guess, you want to be sure that everyone is additive to what the council does as a whole. And um, there are times when it's, it's been where I think some of the um, controversy and some of the, um, I know that she wouldn't characterize it this way, but you know the threatening emails to, to colleagues, um, you know that, uh, you know certainly I know reporters have been at the other end of um, kind of her attacks. It's not constructive, um, and that was a, is a real concern for that is I think a. You know, it, it hurts her own effectiveness, but it also hurts the effectiveness of the council as a whole. Helen Jung, thank you so much for spending the time with us. I hope we can do this again because I still want to talk about the measures, and I know you're coming up with another round of endorsements coming up soon. Right. Helen Jung with the Oregonian. I hope we can do this soon. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Alex and Helen, for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Again, we would love your support for the work. You can become a member at 15 bucks a month. We understand that not everybody can. Listen guilt-free. If you can't afford it, we totally get it. We're here for you. If you can't afford it, we hope you will. You get a cool new shirt, a record tote. Just call that number, 503-233-9729. It's 503-233-9729. You'll talk to a human being. Or if you don't want to talk to a human being, go to xray.fm slash donate. 
For story ideas, you can send us an email at the local at xray.fm. We can be together while we're apart. And a big thanks to our production team, editor Will Romy, writers Zeke Brunkhart, Casey Colton, Kate Kay, Julia Oppenheimer, Joy Palchik, Miranda Selinger, writer Sherwood, and Jamie Zangwill, co-executive producer Emily Gilliland. I'm Jefferson Smith. Thanks to original news pieces from Kate Kay, The Lund Report, Portland Business Journal, The Willamette Week, Pamplin Media, OPB, The Oregonian, The Statesman Journal, Street Roots and News Partners, Bridgeliner, and The Portland Mercury. Talk to you Monday. Today is gone. Today was fun. Tomorrow will be another one. In the meantime, stay home, stay connected, and thank you, democracy. X-Ray.